Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. We have a very full slate today, so let's get right at it. Later in the show, we'll meet Marvel's latest superhero. He's Canadian. You already know him from starring on Kim's Convenience, but very soon he'll be best known for playing the title character in Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. Throughout my life, the Ten Rings gave our family power. If you want them to be yours one day, you have to show me you are strong enough to carry them. He's Marvel's first Asian superhero. His name is Simu Liu, and we'll meet him later in the show. Also, we'll meet Nicole Dorsey, the director and screenwriter of Black Conflux, a film now on VOD after a very successful theatrical run. The Globe and Mail praised the story of the lives of a disillusioned teen and an alienated man that come together in 1980s Newfoundland for its, quote, atmosphere of dread and depiction of rural life as a hotbed of sexual fantasies and violence. Stick around. There's lots to unpack about that one. My first guest today, though, comes from a musical family. Martha Wainwright is the daughter of folk singer and actor Loudon Wainwright III and singer-songwriter Kate McGarrickle. Her older brother is Rufus Wainwright, but she has made her own mark with a series of critically acclaimed albums. Her latest is Love Will Be Reborn, a record that appears to cover the period of time where Wainwright divorced her husband after about a decade of marriage. Love Will Be Reborn was recorded in Wainwright's hometown of Montreal in the basement of her cafe, Ursa, which also served as the studio. Before we get to the interview, let's hear just a taste of the title track. I take the throne and throw away the crown And leave flowers in my hair from around And the injustices I joins me via Zoom from Ursa in Mile End in Montreal. Congratulations on the new record. Thank you. Thank you very much. Tell me how the songs uh, Love Will Be Reborn and Body and Soul, how are they the springboard for this album? That's what you've called them. How so? Well, they were the first two songs that I wrote. You know, I find that they really have um, expressed um, different sides of uh, some of the aspects of some of the things that that um, um, this record is about that I was going through, but in, in different ways, you know, Level We Were Born is quite hopeful, quite positive. Um, it's really, um, it, 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 it's surprisingly hopeful because when I wrote it, I was surprised at how hopeful it, it, it was because um, I was uh, in a rough, it was a rough time. And then in contrast, Body and Soul just sort of gets more into Sort of the, the the knit and grit of that reality, but also once again, you know, having a, a you know the, the message is you know I'm going to be all right, you know, which I think is really the message of this record. And you say that music has saved your life. Uh, are those two songs kind of emblematic of that? I think so. You know, I think that um, it's really been. You know, I feel incredibly blessed to be able to 
um, sing and write songs. I think everyone should do it because it does, it does really help, you know, to, to just physically singing, singing in a group, singing together, singing in choirs, whatever it is, singing on the street, you know, can really um, help. And, you know, there was so much for me to process um, and like all of us, you know, and it really helps to be able to process the, some difficult aspects of life when you can sort of try and encapsulate an a, something in a song or say something that's really hard to say that's really powerful and really strong in your body and be able to find a way to express that and, and let that out it really is helpful yeah this record was in part inspired by a divorce that you were going through and 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 the residual feelings and everything yeah. that goes along with that mm-hmm. 10 years from now when you listen to this record Will this be kind of the milestone? Will this be that 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 was how I was feeling then? Can you look back through your entire recorded catalog and almost use it like a I don't know a diary or or some way of of cataloging your life? Uh, in my case, as an artist, yes, I think I think a lot of artists feel that way too. But it's certainly in particular with me because I have. A tendency to be quite autobiographic in, in, in a lot of my songs. I feel that this record, kind of like my first record was for me, so it was the beginning and the marking of something new and, and the beginning of something, you know, for, you know, maybe it's middle age, but for me, I feel like instead of something being over, something was the beginning. Mm. And and um, obviously, you know, there's, there's um, uh, you know, my, my there's a song on the record called getting older and and um that's a sentiment but it's really about getting older and really wanting to have it be you know better you know and and sort of escaping into some and and get away from something and getting into something that's more positive and um so i'm i i've also you know i want to make sure that the songs are some songs some songs i will sing for a long time others i will end up you know letting go over time but a lot of these songs are also, you know, can be interpreted different ways. And that's really important too. You're listening to my interview with Martha Wainwright. Her new album, Love Will Be Reborn, is available wherever you buy fine music. I found uh, at a certain point, probably in my 40s, that it became far more important for me to look forward than it did to look back. And I yeah. think that th- that's a maybe a, a milestone that a lot of people hit. I don't know, but it was significant for me and it has yeah. stayed with me and, and it has changed yeah. the way that I do things, the way that I live. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just, um, you know, and, and obviously as I'm getting older, you know, I'm watching my kids, you know, who are now getting bigger, you know, they're <laughs> seven and 11 and they're quite tall and just yeah. sort of you know, just thinking about needing to be there for them and, and, you know, the world that they're going to live in, you know? So the album you, you say is sort of a new beginning, but there's an interesting aspect uh, in that your producer, Pierre Marchand has been a friend and a collaborator for a very long time of your family. Uh, he produced uh, your mom, Kate and uh, Anna, her, her, your aunt, her sister, Anna McGarrickle's mm-hmm. uh, album, Heart. Uh, Heartbeats Accelerating, produced your brother's album, Poses. Uh, tell me a little bit about working with someone with that family history, someone that you've known for a long time. What did he bring to the sessions that might not have been there otherwise? Right. Well, I think, you know, in this, in the case of this record, I was so 
you know, I, I, I write all the songs, I play the guitar, I sing the songs, I'm, I'm involved in, you know, what the musicians, I, you know, playing with the musicians and sort of making art, artistic decisions. And I just realized I cannot do any more than that. <laughs> I really need to give this <laughs> into the hands of right. somebody who I totally trust, who's going to really take it to the next level. And here's one of these producers who really has a, ma is really masterful with, you know, um, um, and meticulous with sound and voice. And I really felt that I kind of deserved that, you know, after being making records for a long time and being sort of known as a singer, I was like, I really want to give myself the opportunity to really take that as far as I can, as far as it can go. And Pierre's the guy to do that. And it just worked out really well that, that you know, the, the timing of it and he was ready to make something. I was ready to work with him. And it actually is exactly... 30 years after he made my mom's record, Heartbeats Accelerating, and she was exactly my age when that record was made too. And there's, so there's a lot of parallels. And that record, Heartbeats Accelerating, is really a, a record about becoming, you know, getting older, becoming middle-aged, and, and really a, woman, a woman's story. And so there's really a lot of parallels that I felt really good about because I just felt I needed to be able to just completely hand it over to somebody and just trust that they're going to do the best and just take it to a better place than I could ever have. the word trust there a few times in that answer. Yeah. And I wonder if that means and, and is related to this other quote that I have from you, where you say, I'm shedding a certain amount of questioning of myself and of my music. It comes with getting older, I guess confidence comes with that. And you know, all those sorts of things, as we've talked about. Uh, but was that part of it? Uh, the, the, you know, working with with Pierre Marchand, was that part of of shedding the questioning and diving back into uh, working in a different way without reticence? Um, well, I think it was, a, yeah, I think it was about letting go of, of certain things. I, I, you know, it's interesting that the this is not a pandemic record, but it, and I started it before the pandemic, but definitely the pandemic had an effect on, on the making of it. it. It elongated it in a way, but in a way that I think was kind of beneficial. I ended up writing some more songs. And also Pierre worked from it at a distance. He worked up in the Laurentians while I was in town. And that separation, I think, really kind of helped too, because it helped me to to kind of in a, be mature and let let it go and let him do his job and I can't be present saying like Pick, turn this up turn that down I don't like that you know just really really um, hand it over and then that you know sort of um, acceptance um, really has only come with with time and experience and I you know had to accept a lot of things that have been so difficult it's really now easy to accept things that that are really kind of going to be fine you know and 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 um the perspective aspect of it i find that you know the songs are are still personal but they're not obviously as um maybe as navel gazing as my earlier records because when you're you know in your 20s especially you know it's really a, a time when you're really self absorbed obviously you know it's a time when everything that happens seems like it's earth shattering because right. you don't have the the luxury of having years under your belt to understand that not everything is going to change the world. <laughs> everything that happens exactly. to you is not going to affect the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. 
and when things that do are are life-shattering you know um and really difficult that you have to find a way to uh get through them i cried only one tear for us today and i will wipe it away before the day breaks and there is love in every part of me i know But the key is falling deep into the snow. Tell me a little bit about the the book, Stories I Might Regret Telling You. Uh, It's finished after years of of Mm. writing it and and working on it. Um, Mm. You have 80,000 words, from what I understand. That's a a substantial amount of book. Right, well, that's the, that, that I was contracted to, you know, a commission to write 80,000 words, which I guess is kind of a standard contract. And this was seven years ago. And I think since then, I've written probably 800,000 words <laughs> and really taken a lot out of it, added stuff into it. It, put it, I, I, it was on hold for, for quite a while as well. But I thought they really needed to just finish it and, and get it out there and sort of, you know, it's that it's you know it's it's there's somebody I I think I don't know if it's Picasso but somebody said something about you know a pay, art and painting in particular but they were like you know a painting is never it's never finished you know it's just finished when you put, release it you put it right. out there and that right. said at a certain point with the book I was just like okay I gotta stop I just gotta <laughs> let it go and you know the, and then the the legal department will read through it and you know somebody will edit it and you know take out what they think is crap and you know, just sort of, um, uh, once again, just keep moving forward. The great Canadian uh, documentary director, Alan King, told me one time that his films are finished when he runs out of money. <laughs> that's, <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> that's like albums. Definitely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Eventually, you know, the, yeah. the, the money taps are off and you have to walk away, exactly. I guess. Right. <laughs> exactly. Um, exactly. Uh, how's Ursa doing now? I, I, there was, you were doing music outside that has changed yeah. now, I think. Right. Well, yeah. So we're, I'm actually at Ursa right now. We're rehearsing in the, in the back room, which was a room that used to have a lot of shows in it. We're going to still do some shows inside, but it has to go at like half capacity, which is, right. you know, the reality of it. But it, it being a really small venue, that does you make very little financial sense. So we're going to have to really think about how to go forward. But we really want to make an effort, you know, to to be able to open and stay open and um, in safety, of course, you know. And we were doing some shows in the back, which was really great and really appreciated. But it's really we can't get a permit because of the bylaws of this neighborhood right there's so, noise you know, there's noise bylaws right because you, you probably have well, residential neighbors right it's not what it is is that the, each each neighborhood is slightly different but if you in my line where we are there's you can't have any activity in the lanes all everything has to be in the front so the terrace and everything right. is always in the front right. and that doesn't make any sense for us because we can't have a show in the front you know so it's been you know um but it's such an appreciated music series that we've been doing and it's not very loud and it's not and it's only once a week and it's a really reasonable time so i'm really hoping that we can find a way to 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 keep doing it because i think people really appreciated it and also it's really the kind of the safest way at this point you know what i mean and and so um i you know we'll see we'll see what the city can can do you know and uh 
but things are going to have to change. You know, they, this is unfortunately probably going to happen again. And, you know, we have to find ways to encourage the arts to, to live um, in our lives, to be in our lives. I think if one thing, well, in my life anyway, if one thing has come out of the pandemic, it just reinforced in me uh, the, the knowledge that the arts are so important because what did everybody do? They binged watch television, they read books, they listened to music. And, you know, in, in all the, the, the hardship that have happened in the last 17 or 18 months, whatever it's been, uh, a sense of nostalgia for old television and, and music has really carried people through and, and yeah. also discovering new music as well. Uh, but yeah. it is the arts exactly. that has gotten us through. Exactly. You can't just eat your way through the pandemic. <laughs> I tried and it didn't work out so well. Exactly. You know, at a certain point, you know, following recipes gets boring. So, you know, yeah, there's other things we got to do. That was Martha Wainwright. Her new album, Love Will Be Reborn, is available wherever you buy fine music. Now let's switch gears. Now let's meet Nicole Dorsey. She's the director and screenwriter of Black Conflicts, a great new drama now on VOD following a very successful run in theaters and at film festivals. The Hollywood Reporter praised the story of the lives of a disillusioned teen and an alienated man that converge in 1980s Newfoundland, calling it a haunting and humane twist on thriller conventions. You just find yourself... Ending up someplace. Not quite sure how it happened. I like you, I, I really do. But sometimes I think there's something wrong with you. Dennis set a car on fire once. <laughs> so what? They saw something they wanted and they took it. I made a mistake. Here's Nicole Dorsey. It's fun to be here. It's fun to keep talking about the film. You were lucky because you got a theatrical release. It must have been very exciting after the year we've had, the year and a half we've had. Obviously, as a filmmaker, when it's your first feature, there is the dream of theatrical. Um, so for it to come back <laughs> this extended time later, um, it, it was this super exciting surprise. Let's talk about the prep for the film. So you were interested in exploring a story that you had heard about in Newfoundland about a hitchhiker who had gone missing. Uh, so you did something I think that's a little bit unorthodox. You decided to hitchhike across uh, Newfoundland and, and, and get a feel for it. Was that the whole purpose of, of that trip? Yeah, I had talked to a few historians in the area. This was back in 2010. And there were actually a series of hitchhiking crimes that happened throughout the entire 80s. Um, but no, hitchhiking just also seemed like the best way around the Irish loop. And I was camping and I was with my boyfriend at the time. Um, but no, I became very interested because I was obviously meeting a lot of drivers and different people just how do two people from seemingly different worlds meet? Mm -hmm. um, and is it timing, coincidence? What is it? So that sparked the story, but it really evolved uh, once I started writing. Did you ever feel unsafe? I, I, I used to hitchhike when I was a kid. I grew up on the East Coast, and it was just one of the ways that we got around. But that was a long time ago. Your story is much more recent. 
Well, I mean, this was slightly over a decade ago, but mm -hmm. no, I mean, Newfoundland, there's something quite magical about the area. It's a very insulated community. And I think because of that, there's this sense of helping one another out. So we, we had some really enjoyable rides. Sometimes I remember this one guy, his accent was so thick, I could barely understand what he was saying, <laughs> but just so, so sweet. And, you know, again, I wasn't on my own. Maybe that would have felt slightly different. And mm. it was during the day. It wasn't like a spooky night ride sort of thing. Um, yeah. And I guess we were sort of more in the sort of woodsy type areas. Right. So um, not quite close to the, to St. John's when we started. So yeah, it, it felt fine at the time. The film was inspired by, uh, or informed at least, by your aunt's experience of growing up in Newfoundland. Um, what interested you about the story? What grabbed you about that story? Yes, the film is takes place in Newfoundland, but I do think there's a very universal experience, especially within the Jackie character. And I didn't grow up in a broken home like she did, but... I definitely experienced the growing pains and sort of the gray zones that Jackie goes through in the film. And that very much was a part of me, but I think it's very much a part of the, the coming of age experience um, for both, yeah, men and women. And shooting in Newfoundland, uh obviously lends uh, just a, a physical beauty to the film. I mean, mm -hmm. everywhere you point your camera, there's something interesting to look at down there. Uh, but it's interesting, uh, the word conflux means mm -hmm. merging, means bringing together, and there's a recurring sort of motif in the movie of these uh, two rivers that, that merge, much like the two characters from completely different places and spaces uh, merge in the film. Tell me about finding that because as a visual metaphor, it's, it's important that it works. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it's an aerial shot. Did you use drones? How did you, how did you come across and, and land on that particular yeah. area? Yeah, it was a tricky one because it was written in the script from the get go. So it's, it's sort of like putting the, uh, uh, cart before the horse sort of right, thing. Right, right. So I spent a lot of time on Google Maps just trying to find a, a river that functioned like that. And wow, one of our producers, Mark, he was like, I think I've heard of this spot. And so we brought out the map and it looked on paper like the most perfect river. Mm -hmm. And so we went out and we thought there'd be a road. It was in an area known as Nuggetville, but Nuggetville is not a ville. It's literally an ATV trail. Um, <laughs> so we hiked into the bush because we didn't have ATVs for a couple hours and emerged at this beautiful complex and threw the drone up and could see sort of it on a larger scale that it was so perfect. Um, and so we went back out with a very skeleton crew with an ATV and, and brought our drone operator and shot. Yeah. That, that must have been one of those great aha moments that when it comes together, as you say, you put the cart before the horse, it was in the script, you had to find it, and then you find the perfect thing. Yeah, I mean, we didn't know we were like, maybe part of it will have to be VFX and mm -hmm. build it. But I really wanted to find the real thing. And this, this complex was unbelievably perfect. <laughs> You're listening to my interview with Nicole Dorsey. Find her film Black Conflux on VOD right now. Well, let's talk uh, about some of the other inspirations for the film. From my understanding is that uh, you have a great knowledge of film history. You love movies. That makes 
perfect sense to me, being a director and all. But you say that uh, this is partially uh, inspired by films about uh, delusional men, I guess, in movies like Psycho, Peeping Tom, uh, which is a film that not a lot of people have seen, but it's absolutely fantastic, even if it ruined Michael Powell's career, uh, <laughs> The Collector and then Taxi Driver. So tell me about how those movies informed your movie. Yeah, well, I definitely love 70s cinema, American 70s cinema, mm -hmm. which I think comes across in this film. Taxi Driver, for sure. There's a little ode to Taxi Driver in the cafe with a bubbling drink, which, you know, is pays homage to Godard and pays homage to Carol Reed. So, I mean, there is sort of that connection that I like to draw. But I think, you know, there's other films in modern times like Eliza Hittman's It Felt Like Love, was a big inspiration for the Jackie character mm -hmm. and, and getting to sort of the the realness of her interactions. But also I love Smooth Talk, the Laura Dern film. And yeah, that was I, an inspiration too. I, I don't know that movie. What What is that all about? Um, it's uh, by, directed by Joyce Chopra and it's, uh, it's about a young 14 year old uh, girl who is sort of discovering her own sexuality and um, realizing that in a world, in that current world that makes her vulnerable and mm. making those two discoveries at once. And it, it's a slow, soft, haunting film. I think it's quite brilliant. Um, and was definitely an influence for, for Black Envelopes. Let's talk about uh, working with the cast. Um, you've got uh, Ella Ballantyne, who plays Jackie, and uh, Ryan McDonald, who plays Dennis. Uh, tell me about uh, the process of, of working with them. Did you work with them together before the cameras rolled? Or because of the nature of the story, did you try and keep them apart? Yeah, we kept them apart. Um, also just the nature of shooting because the worlds don't really collide. We shot Ella's portion of the story first. Mm. And then there was a little bit of crossover for the scenes they share. And then Ella left and we shot Ryan for the for the remainder of our shooting period. Right. And I didn't, you know, obviously, uh, I won't say too much about the film, but um, you know, there's an intense moment that they share. And so I didn't want them to sort of meet in that intense moment. So we did a bit of a rehearsal beforehand just to make sure there's a safety and a comfort there because acting is obviously a very vulnerable thing. Yeah. But I didn't want to do too much because I did want that feeling to be very fresh. Yeah. Important to know, you know, when to hold them and when to fold them in a moment like that, yeah. I guess, right? And, and, yeah. And clearly it, it, it worked out here. Uh, um, where do you learn that? I mean, is that the kind of thing that you learn in film school or how does it, how do, how do you know to do that? I think it's trial and error. Mm -hmm. um, I also acted for many years and, yeah. and was in acting classes as well for many years. And I think learning the language of the actor was very helpful and trying out different things myself and what works for me. Um, and then, yes, this is my first feature, but I've also made about 12 short films. So you do try different things out and also different projects require different things too. There might be with this film with Ella and the girls, we did do rehearsals, but it was improvised. We didn't stick to the script. And with Ryan, sort of we, 
the big dance sequence, we had to rehearse that. And, and I like to have a lot of conversations, but yeah, I, I think for me, this is working right now and we'll see you on the next project, whether I'll feel differently. I, I think it's an instinctual thing. I love that uh, for the 12 short films or so that you've made, uh, that you would work a bit, blow all your money on a short film and then uh, make the film you were so driven to do it. Why do you think you're so driven to create? I guess I'm not motivated by money. Um, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I, sometimes I wonder if it has to do with being an only child. And when I was a kid, just spending a lot of time alone and creating and that being a way to express oneself. Um, I think also I want to contribute to current conversations that are happening and I know how influential media is and storytelling is and what a powerful tool it can be. And I, I think in a way that helps me connect to the world um, and have something to give. So I guess that's what's driven me all along. Um, yeah, and now, you know, I'm entering a different world where I'm not necessarily writing everything that I'm directing. Um, so putting your sort of stamp on that and finding stories you connect to is pretty exciting as well. That was my interview with Black Conflicts director Nicole Dorsey. Find that film on VOD right now. Until recently, actor Simu Liu was best known for playing Young Kim, the assistant manager at Handy Car Rental on the hit television series Kim's Convenience. All that will change this weekend when he moves to the big screen, becoming Marvel's first Asian superhero in the epic Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. The latest addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and now playing in theaters, is a rarity. It's a superhero origin movie that doesn't suck. Now, they haven't all been terrible, but I still feel the burn of Fantastic Four, Green Hornet, and Catwoman whenever I hear the dreaded origin story words. But Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings doesn't suck, far from it. It's a standalone origin movie with some of the best action sequences seen in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There's a couple of Hong Kong screen legends in the form of Tony Leung and Michelle Yao, and a winning performance from Simo Liu. I caught up with him recently on the last day of months of promotion for the film. He went around the world probably a couple of times, attending premieres and getting a story out there. He was tired, but game to chat about everything from his parents to, well, the way that he prepared for his first superhero role. It's not what you think. Here's Simu Liu. I thought I could change my name. Start a new life. But I could never escape his shadow hi how are you i am good it's been a it's been a whirlwind and i realize i'm yawning as i'm uh i'm saying that uh which well, you gives away must, how fatigued i am but uh, you must I'm, be I'm, exhausted i'm hanging in there richard i'm uh you know I'm, I'm very aware that this is the opportunity of a lifetime so as tired as i get and as little sleep as i get it's still the most fun ride I, i've ever been on well, the reviews are in and they are great, which must feel really good for you. But the most important critics, I think, were probably at your premiere. What did your parents think of the movie? 
I think they were very relieved that I didn't suck. Uh, <laughs> I think they, <laughs> I could, I could practically feel their anxiety and nervousness radiating off of them as the as the screen was kind of darkening and and then you know the movie started and we saw the Marvel title card. I could just feel them saying, "Oh my God, this is happening! Please don't mess this up! Please don't mess this up!" Uh, it's it, it speaks to their mentality that they've had their whole lives as immigrant parents of just like constant worry and anxiety. But but um, you know I've learned to kind of just interpret that as as love and um, you know the unconditional love of a parent, so I, you know I understand it's it's part of their it's part of the process. You are a product of all who came before you. The legacy of your family. You are your mother, and whether you like it or not, you are also your father. Doing some research to try and figure out what to ask you, and I came across a Globe and Mail article from just over four years ago. 2017. And the headline is reluctant accountant changes career for a better role as an actor. Can you believe the last four years? It, it must make your head spin. You said earlier you're exhausted, but it, it, it must be the best kind of exhaustion. Um, it really is. Yeah. When that article was written four years ago, I was on a show called Kim's Convenience. Obviously, you know, it, it was such a pride and joy of Canada. We were just starting to get introduced to a global audience. But, you know, you know, I, I could walk down a street, you know, it, it really <laughs> it, it felt like, um, you know, it, it felt like more or less still a normal life. And uh, since then, I can say everything that has happened in the last month or two in particular has been decidedly not normal. You're listening to my interview with Simu Liu, star of Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, now playing in theaters. Well, you even have an action figure, which is not normal. Not, not many of us do. Uh, do you have one? Do you have more than one? Where do you keep it in the house if you do? Um, I, I have one that kind of that, that sits on a table and, and looks at me with the with the same blank expression. Uh, always, which I always, you know, ticks me off because I'm wondering what he's thinking all the time and why he's being so judgmental. Um, and then, and then uh, when the when the toys first came out, I, I actually like I went to Targets all over Los Angeles and uh, just basically bought all of the ones that I could find because I was so worried that nobody would would buy them and that they would just sit on a shelf. So I was like, I gotta go scoop them all up. And then and then I wrangled my friends into it and they all started scouring targets all over and we had this big text chain going on of you know people just saying, hey, I'm at the Jefferson location. I'm at the La Cienega location. Great, I'm at the Beverly Center. Like, what did you get? What did you get? And so we, we, we accumulated this like, this like pile of action figures now that it, that I have no home for and is just occupying space in, in my apartment. Uh, so, so uh, too many, too many action figures is my, is my answer. I trained you so the most dangerous people in the world couldn't kill you. Son, it's time for you to take your place by my side. You used to dress up as Spider-Man for kids' birthday parties. Do you have a strong memory that comes back from that? I love that you were so eager to practice your, your craft, to get out there in the world, uh, that you did that. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. Um, well, I gave up all my weekends uh, uh, for, for a whole summer. Um, <laughs> and I, I, was, I was physically assaulted by kids uh, frequently. That, that, that is probably the, the memory that I take with me the most is, is, is children who 
you know, uh, or just either convinced that I wasn't the real Spider-Man or just, you know, very committed to um, uh, punching me and continually <laughs> punching me and climbing me in some instances to try to take my, my mask off and, and all of those things. I would not recommend it. I'm sorry to say. And and if and if you must do it, invest a little in the costume so it at least looks like the movies. Don't don't buy the thirty dollar Walmart version. Um, you're gonna fool nobody. See, congratulations on this and all the success in the movie. I know people are gonna love it. Uh, get some sleep. You know, feel good. Thank you. I'm looking forward <laughs> to doing that. Throughout my life. The Ten Rings gave our family power. If you want them to be yours one day, you have to show me you are strong enough to carry them. That was Simo Liu. He is terrific in the movie Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings as the title character, a martial arts master who confronts the past he thought he had left behind when he's drawn into the web of the mysterious Ten Rings organization. The movie succeeds because of its action, its cast, and story, but most of all, it works because of its sincerity. It is as epic as any other Marvel movie, but it's the small moments that really add up. The story's emphasis on personal cultural details, relationships, and family provides an earth-bound grounding that helps balance out the mystical themes of the final 45 minutes of the film. Liu's performance is believable both as the everyman Sean he plays in the film's first half and as the heroic Shang-Chi because the relationships that have formed him with his mother, father, sister, and Katie are well detailed showing us how and why he became the person he did. The backstory, that dreaded origin story, works despite a reliance on flashbacks and is distinct enough so as not to feel like Shang-Chi is being forced into the Marvel Cinematic Universe like so many other superheroes have. Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings has heroics, heart, humor, and homages to Asian culture to make it the best and most fun standalone Marvel movie since Black Panther. Well, that's it for the show this week. A big thanks to Simu Liu for taking time out of his busy schedule to sit down and chat with me. Also want to thank Martha Wainwright. Find Love Will Be Reborn wherever you buy fine music and look for Nicole Dorsey's film Black Conflux on VOD. I'm Richard Krause. Stay healthy, stay happy, stay safe, stay weird, and we'll talk again soon. <laughs>